Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, a 21st century stage for stories, with your host and author, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. Usually the stories heard here are performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues, who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. But for this episode, we proudly present some real live local actors who put upstart spear holders like your host to shame. So settle in, get comfy, and enjoy the upgrade as we begin the next story episode on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. Soon to arrive at Santa's workshop, Lester Melrose prepares to set his dark plan in motion in episode two of Goodbye Cruel World. Sounds of sleigh bells filled the train car where I sat, and I glanced about the passenger car, afterward pulling back the curtains beside me, searching for sassafras and corny, and praying they were somehow gone for good. Outside, snow was drifting down onto the green and red-trimmed station of North Pole, New Mexico, white blanketing the cacti and yuccas of the state ironically nicknamed the Land of Enchantment. Worried about my briefcase, I rushed to grab it. Relieved to discover it's still there, moments later, I was slipping and sliding through the snows outside. Unfortunately, I found my two tag-alongs near the train platform playing in all the white, sassafras on his back making snow angels. Dodging Tweedledum and Dumber, I whistled for one of the Courier and Ives brand sleighs at the end of the platform. <whistles> Driver, take me to Santa's workshop. Right-ho, diddy up! With Laurel and Hardon in hot pursuit, we were off. The sleigh got upsot only once. A traditional and, frankly, highly unnecessary predicament, and we soon pulled up before the great candy-caned, toy-soldier-guarded, mistletoe-garnished entrance to Santa's workshop. I stepped to the doors, just as a snowball slammed in the back of my bald head. Sassafras. The dimwit duo trotted up behind me as I tried to play it cool in front of the entry guards. Two giant toy soldiers. Hi ho, visitor. How are you there? Fine, Mr. Toy Soldier. I tried to step through the door. Up, 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 up. Can't go in there. Nope, can't go. Not today. Today's the day Santa gives his annual State of the Workshop address to the elves at his happily syndicated workshops nationwide. It's broadcast on every station so all the boys and girls can tune in too. Yes, I know. But I came here to see him in person. Oh, buck up, little soldier. Let's not see tears. Here's a hanky for you. You can come back tomorrow. Yes, you can. And we'll be here to say hello and welcome and good day to you. Hi-ho. I flipped them off. I was about to implement a decidedly more violent plan B when one of the soldiers pressed a finger to his ear, pushing his earphone in and listening. I'd forgotten the two fruitcake-colored surveillance cameras flanking the doors. Right-o. 
The soldier smiled into the cameras and nodded. My eyes widened. Suddenly, six soldiers marched out from the entryway, headed straight for me. I thought to run for it, just before they passed me and politely escorted Sassafras in through the doors. Oh, oh, thank you. The dragon was practically giddy with the attention while I stood there, shocked, and then thankful that Eldorco had come along after all. Corny and I started in after him when the guard with the earphone cut us off again. Hold on there, young man. Can't go in. No, no, no. But our friend Mr. Dragon got to go in. Oh, no. He just has to go night-night. What? The soldier dithered with his earphone again, and I heard the words, Prince Charming. Oh, my heartbeat pretty much hit the skids. I should have known he'd be here. All the major players attended Santa's address. Prince Charming, Neptunia, Queen of the Mermaids, the Easter Bunny. Years earlier, when Rumpelstiltskin went more haywire than usual and tried to start spinning everybody's cats into gold, the Bureau of Make-Believe thought the pomp-ass Prince Charming a natural to take him down. And he'd done so. Pretty chillingly, in fact. With his triumph over the Stiltskin problem, he was promoted to full-time vanquisher, dealing with such aberrations as tooth fairies that actually stole teeth while they were still in people's mouths. And more recently, dragons that unaccountably breathed fire. Seeing Sassafras disappear inside the doors, I was ready to go kamikaze on Santa's secret service. After all, no matter how big a pain in the posterior the dragon was, he was still an innocent. I couldn't just let him be killed. See what a sap I'd become? Meanwhile, Corny, of all creatures, was dragging me away before my temper got us in worse trouble. You ain't gonna get in, Les. The joint's lousy with toy soldiers. You don't say. And just what do you propose? A buddy of mine used to visit one of the fillies out back. So? So we sneaks in through the stables. There isn't time for that. Well, Les, then I guess it's you against 200 guards in funny tights. He had a point, so I let him lead the way. Not only did we have to figure out a way to rescue Sassafras now, if we could, but if the dragon opened his yap about the Santa plot, our little undertaking was already toast. It took a while to make our way through the twinkling tree-lighted pines, Corny getting all cloak and dagger on me as he galloped melodramatically from one evergreen to the next for cover. Sentries were sporadically clustered along the workshop's perimeter, and just beyond their last guard shack, fencing started. Not that that stopped Corny. When we were safely out of the guard's range, he made short work of a length of chain link using hoof and horn. We squeezed through. With evening officially underway and my snow-covered feet freezing, I peeked at my Captain Rocket secret decoder watch. Corny, we got 10 minutes till the broadcast. Where the hell are the stables? That's them there, through that window. Soon, we were sneaking toward the stables, and as we did, Corny looked at me slyly. There's something else too, ain't there, Les? Another reason you're doing this. You mean because of Sassafras? No, I'm talking about you wanting to bring down this whole screwy world, as you put it. No. Really? Sure it don't have something to do with your wife leaving you? You're out of your little horsey mind. Uh-huh, okay. I turned to stare at the stables outside, changing the subject about as subtly as Sassafras. There's no door. Not to worry, Les. Corny found a worn spot along the stable wall and started softly kicking the area with his hoof. It sounded like code. 
After a minute of it, I heard rustling inside, and soon a sheath of planking slid back. Corny entered and shook the snow off himself. I followed. A reindeer stood before us. Hey, what's going on here? Corny, is that you? Hiya, vixen. What's shaking? Bambi sent you here? No, I ain't seen the Bam Man. I got other business. You're right. Well, you tell that good for nothing. I'm not talking to him. Mm-mm. Not no more. Hey, Vixen, I don't know nothing. Yeah, because you're stupid as he is. I catch him with that little Arabian again, and so help me, he's going to be a gelding. Well, maybe if you laid off the feedback once in a while, Vixen. Why, you little runt. Get out of here. Get out. Next I knew, reindeer hooves were bucking in my direction. They're breaking in. They're breaking in. Somebody stop them. A stall wall collapsed, while Corny tried shutting up Vixen by tossing a horse blanket over her head. Oh, nice going, Corny. Definitely have a way with the ladies. Ain't my fault, screwy dame. Then Vixen's kicking set off the workshop alarm. A hearty refrain of, Oh, come all ye faithful. I scurried for the stable's main door with Corny. No handle or knob was visible. The damn thing must have opened from the outside. How the hell do we get it open? Watch and learn, Les. The unicorn reared and kicked with everything he had. The door groaned, but didn't give way, the alarm music playing on. I heard voices, shrill hi-ho words from where we'd just come. White-gloved hands and licorice black bayonets began poking through the snowy hole in Vixen's stall. They're over there! Get them! Corny reared again and gave the door a thunderous kick, snapping it completely in two this time. Unfortunately, on the other side were twice as many soldiers charging from the hallway's end. Oh, cripes! Corny plunged his horn down a holly-colored hall to our right. This way! From what I knew, Santa's workshop was laid out like a giant snowflake, corridors crisscrossing every which way. The auditorium resided at its center, the place where the claws would give his speech. I hadn't a clue where we were headed, though. Corny acted like he knew, but he was the kind that could have gotten lost in his own stall. Still, we had to be close. Thankfully, the soldiers were slower than Sassafras. Oh, and by the way, that's a metaphor, lame brain. Unfortunately, Corny, cursing at the tractionless floors, slammed into nearly every hallway's end, turning the walls to Swiss cheese with his horn, and leaving a lovely calling card for the troops to find us by. I heard the muffled throb of music ahead, and two great wreath-covered doors swung open before us, accompanied by a blast of Christmas music and waves of rancid air. As the doors opened, a small and very green elf stumbled through the opening, and clutching my pant leg, promptly threw up on my shoes. Now, just so you know, I take great pride in my clothing. I'm very dapper, in my way. And dragon drool and elf erp just aren't welcome to the well-tailored. Needless to say, I swabbed my shoes with a little pointier twit, till I got a good, clean shine then drop-kicked them back through the door. Can I get my hands on you? I'm gonna... Cursing me with every five-letter word in the elf vocabulary, he sailed back inside into a veritable army of chattering, slobbering elves, all making merry. And no one made merry better than elves. Liquor and loose women littered the room. Little men swung from the rafters and chandeliers as some scampered about, shamelessly peering up women's dresses, while others, martinis in hand, tried to impress the females by bragging about their toy-making prowess. According to news reports, the elves were always like this, 
the tiny stature made up for with a penchant for partying, and libidos the size of Santa. Occasionally, one or two would really tie one on, man up the reindeers, and buzz folks in the luckless towns nearby. Several government bureaus tried to correct the quote-unquote elf problem early on, but because the little men quickly unionized, becoming one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington, and because their immense social and drinking talents were secretly held in high esteem by most members of Congress, the elves escaped any binding legislation. Even I admired them in my own small way, and despised them too. Then I saw the cameras at the room's rear. This is it, Corny, the auditorium. They're broadcasting from right here. There's the podium and the great green and red Christmas seal behind it. Uh-oh, toy soldiers. Time to mingle, Corny. I knifed my way through the inebriate crowd, using my briefcase to divide them. A nauseous mix of cheap perfume and tiny cigar smoke stung my eyes. I crossed half the room, Corny behind me, his back now draped with elves wanting a horsey back ride, when I spotted four cherry-cheeked soldiers peek through the open doors. Immediately, I slunk to the ground, yelling at Corny to do the same. Then one of the drunker elves grabbed my briefcase, the thermos still within, and ran the other way, giggling like he thought there were girly magazines inside. Well, hello, Santa Claus, hello. I cursed and dove after him through the forest of smoke and little green tights, tramping over pointy toes. Give that back, you little toad. Somebody threw a drink in my face, chattering angrily about bent bells. And right after, Corny yelled something about the soldiers. They were coming. Panicking, I lunged for the briefcase, elbowing two of the little lushes out of my way. Grumbling, they fell into a drunken congregation of their brothers. Somebody cursed at somebody else. Somebody raised a little pink fist, and instantly the gathering turned into a regular elf riot. Miniature men clubbed each other with candy canes. Petrified fruitcakes flew through the air in a pie fight beyond ugly, and still elves shamelessly looked up women's dresses. I spotted my briefcase abandoned on the floor, and snatching it up, ran towards the stage, right into my wife. Everything came to a screeching halt then, my heart especially. Wenda stood there, an elf on each arm, just blinking at me, wearing a velvet dress of maroon with an enormous bow on the back. Her red curls splashed across those milky shoulders of hers like waves across the rocks. Her shocked look slowly turned to one of delighted disbelief. Les, did you come all this way just to see me? Um, no. It's just a happy coincidence. <laughs> I wanted to die. My breath had caught so far down in my throat, I didn't think I'd ever get it back. I knew she'd gone off with the elves, with her fetish for all men small. But last I'd heard, she'd taken up residence at a satellite workshop in Tennessee, not here. With my heart paralyzed, not to mention every other body part, the toy soldiers nailed me hard and carted me away. No. I think Wanda even tried to follow us, but was cut off by the soldiers who claimed it was for her own safety. Meanwhile, I was hustled backstage, along with Corny, and deposited before the fat man himself. On the way, we passed Sassafras, looking pitiful, his hands and feet chained. Prince Charming stood nearby, a smug look on his fashion model face as he twirled the cuff's key around one finger. I felt like I'd gotten the classic one-two punch, make that one-two-three punch, not only was my plan a shambles and sassafras condemned, but after seeing my wife, 
My heart felt like it had been trampled by a whole herd of reindeer. Behind the claws swarmed TV technicians, set directors, and cameramen. A makeup woman was busily applying rosy red to his cheeks, a wardrobe assistant stitching up a fur-trimmed sleeve. Hi, Santa. Well, ho, ho, ho. So you're the one responsible for this disturbance. As if to punctuate the statement, an errant Christmas ornament sailed past his nose. The claws chuckled in surprise. <laughs> Young man, you were turned away politely at the gates, yet you persisted. You broke into our stables, upset the reindeers, tracked snow, mud, and hay all over the halls, which has upset Mrs. Claus to no end, incidentally. <laughs> and now, just before I'm to go on, you create bedlam in this very hall. So please explain yourself. And remember, I know when you're naughty. <laughs> I squirmed and spewed out some lame story, the Claus occasionally chuckling. <laughs> That's quite an imagination you've got there. Check the briefcase. That eerie whisper had come from everywhere, and yet nowhere. I turned white and made a grab for my case, but the high-hoeing soldiers held me tight. Well, maybe we ought to have a look in this briefcase of yours. A soldier unlatched the case's top, opening it up and digging through it as I held my breath. Why, it's just clothes, sir. I blinked in shock, checking and double-checking, trying to figure out just where the thermos had gone. Apparently, the whole mission had been botched from the beginning. Then I saw Corny look at me and quietly point his horn at Sassafras. The dragon smiled at me, and with one chained paw, he slowly retrieved a little red cup from his pouch. Nothing like having an inside man, eh, Les? Corny, you knew Prince Charming would be here, didn't you? Maybe. I gasped softly. I might still pull it off, if I could just get hold of my secret weapon, that is. The one that had prompted the immediate Santa recall. The insidious brew that would KO the whole Santa operation forever. In truth, my deep dark weapon was a drink that was a favorite of mine. A favorite of almost every Yuletide partier everywhere. Eggnog, with just a pinch of nutmeg. That would do it. The technicians at the Bureau of Make-Believe had discovered, to their great chagrin, that when touched by the drink, the delicate skin cells of the Make-Believe claws reacted very poorly. As the document I'd swiped put it, Within 15 seconds of non-contact, full absorption into the claws of systemic circulation results, severely affecting the central nervous system. Rotting nog and nutmeg enzymes invade the norepinephrine neurotransmitters in the nerve synapses located at the muscle end plates, causing tonic contraction of every muscle in the body. In other words, the claws' entire respiratory system was shut down within half a minute of nog exposure. In fact, fearing the worst after this discovery, the technicians at the Bureau of Make-Believe even checked to see if milk and cookies held any danger to their holly jolly creation. The assistant director pointed Santa to a black X of tape on the floor behind the podium. Camera blocking's all set, Mr. Claus. You know the routine. I'll count you down from five. Mr. Soldier, I'll cut the address short so we can get things back to normal here. Now, if you'll excuse me, young man, my public awaits. Guards, please keep an eye on these two, would you? <laughs> Glorious carols crescendoed from the sound system. The assistant director motioned a silent countdown, and a little red light appeared above the central camera. They were on the air. The claws made his appearance 
and stepped to the podium. The audience clapped and cheered, Santa ho-ho-hoing until the music slowly softened. Ho-ho-ho-ho-ho! Greetings to you all, boys and girls! Normally, at this time, I would commence with a rundown on the welfare of this workshop, but due to circumstances beyond our control... (laughs) It was going to be a short speech. Very short. I'd have 30 seconds at most. I glanced about, searching for anything to use as a diversion. Nothing was within reach. I stared at the curtains, then the flooring, then the props, and realized something. They were all flammable. I turned to Sassafras near the stage end and put a hand to my mouth. Pointing to the curtain, I silently mouthed the word fire. It took a few seconds for it to actually sink in that I was giving him the go-ahead for a little pyromania, and then the dragon's eyes suddenly lit up like a child given jumping rights to the furniture. He huffed slightly, sucking in his immense gut, and then puffed. A thin column of flame leapt out, tickling the draperies nearby. A moment later, fire roared up the curtain. Stunned soldiers fell back around me, some tumbling to the stage floor. Corny swung his horn fiercely to one side, sweeping the remaining toy men back into the stage ropes. I scampered to my feet, waving at the dragon. Sassafras, the thermos, throw it to me! The dragon hesitated a moment, as if frightened to comply. The make-believe claws, oblivious to the backstage disturbance, was only 20 feet from me, still busy with his speech. Sassafras finally produced the container, tossing it to me. I caught it and turned in one fluid motion, target in sight, then stopped. The thermos felt lighter, much lighter. I trembled, unwinding the cap in one desperate spin and tipped the container to peer inside. It seems Sassafras had gotten a little thirsty. Oh, God. I scanned the thermos's bottom. There was the slightest swirl down there. A few thimblefuls still remained. It might be enough. There was no way to tell. Three soldiers charged towards me. Corny turned two into firewood with a solid kick, but more were on their way. I poured on the run. An errant bayonet flew past me in my paltry cup of nog, while another soldier appeared from the draperies ahead. I slid away from him, across the stage, just as the claws turned to greet me. He was still on camera, still on the air, too startled to speak. I flung the cup's contents as the claws shirked backwards in vain. The liquid sprayed outward and splashed, but not on the claws. On something black, something that hadn't been there a second before. An ebony figure, silent, now soggy that vanished just as quickly as it had appeared. A boogeyman. To my great dismay, not a drop of nog touched the claws, and a moment later a squad of soldiers had their big blue mitts on me. The claws' speech came to a rousing close. Elves cheered and threw up, lights dimmed, closing carols played, and the little red lights above the cameras went out. I just stared at the stage floor numbly. Now it'll never change. Why should it change? It was that voice again. The same one that had alerted the claws to my briefcase. The voice of a boogeyman. I wheeled about, but only saw a vague outline, soot dark amongst the curtain shadows. Why should it change? 
because it's make-believe, a total fake, and it doesn't even work right. Look at the elves and the leprechauns, the claws grew up and, and, and the two who followed you? Exactly. But look at the toy soldiers. Do not find them satisfactory? Are they not pleasant, cheery, responsible? And what about your train trip and the outlying stations? Was it not elegant, sentimental, uplifting, even wonderful at times? You were there on the train? In the shadows. I've followed you since you left home. We suspected you after the recall report disappeared, but we could hardly pick you up for carrying a thermos of eggnog. But those examples are hardly anything. Most of it doesn't work. Then we make it better. It took Edison over 3,000 tries before he succeeded with the incandescent lamp, and there have been countless improvements since then. But none of it's real. And what do you consider real? Is a house real? Is that reality? Are the clothes on your back, the packaged meals, the candies you eat, are they reality? What about an air conditioner, a telephone, a simple aspirin? Are they? Are they natural products? Yet they make our world a more livable place, a more pleasant place. They were once as much tangible realities as those of dreams and good intentions. But they're real now. They're a fact of life to us now. They are today's reality, just as dreams and good intentions are becoming. For reality changes every day, every second. It's never the same, ever. New children are born, new books are written, New entertainments devised, new medicines procured. And what do you consider maturity then? Fooling around with dolls and dragons all day? Not accepting any real responsibility? Does maturity need to be difficult? Isn't just living a responsibility? Must we lose our innocence? Even our hope along the way? Ask yourself, do reality and maturity have to be anything other than what we want them to be? But it's just not... Lester, in ages past, reality was a bad word. You had to make yourself strong to face it. You had to be toughened to continue through all the years you had to live with it. That's no longer true. And you probably think we should just disregard death and dying, too. The ultimate reality. No, they are real. Right now, they're real. But who knows? Maybe in the next second. And what about the use of the world? The ones who grew up wanting to change it? They can still do that. They still do it all the time. Just look around you. They were the ones who made this world. Not their mothers and fathers. I paused, off balance. Searching for the arguments once so strong in me. And couldn't find them. And as I stood there, amongst all the decorations and the red and green trim, it reminded me of one of those Christmases where I'd felt neglected and forgotten because the only gift I'd received from Santa was something I could have never seen myself wanting in a million years. And yet, the more I stared at the thing, the more my heart warmed to it, as if Santa had known all along. So, 
I did the first bright thing I'd done in a long time. I shut up. Till I remembered something. Look, I'll go quietly if... Well, can you arrange it so the dragon isn't put down? I'm afraid that's a bit outside my jurisdiction. Plus, I think your wife is already attending to that. Apparently she's going to take him in. The unicorn too. Seems her connections with the elves come in quite handy sometimes. And now I think it's time you're coming along. This way. Where are we going? Prison. For now. But I wouldn't worry too much about it. After you've served your time, and been talked to a little, I think we may have the perfect place for you. Something just right for your temperament. What's that? Well, how do you look in black? You mean I'd become a boogeyman? Perhaps. I grinned inside, thinking about it. I'd always liked black. If you're far away on this holiday And you're dreaming of being at home If you're worried at all that you may be forgotten You should know that you aren't alone Cause you're there and you're shining So don't worry because Santa will find you wherever you are Santa will find you tonight And so concludes Goodbye Cruel World. This is Michael McGee. And for this story, as I mentioned before, uh, I had others doing the vocal work for this episode. In fact, pretty much all the vocal performances heard here were by a a wonderful group of San Francisco area actors called the Ragged Wing Ensemble. Their members include Keith Corey Davis, who played Lester Melrose in some of the uh, elves, Jeffrey Hoffman, who was a sleigh driver and a wonderful Santa, Amy Sass, who played Vixen and the assistant stage director, and Anna Schneiderman, who was the toy soldier, Wenda, and the boogeyman. You can find more information about them at their website at raggedwing.org. The music you heard here was provided by uh, some really, really wonderful artists like Gringo Motel, the Heftone Banjo Orchestra, Lynn and Brian Heffernan and the Fabulous Heftones, Lee Harris, who uh, contributed many tracks to this episode, Brain Bucket, and the lovely Mindy Smith, who sang the beautiful final closing tune, Santa Will Find You. The music and special effects for these episodes were courtesy of websites like CC Mixter, Magnatune, Internet Archive, Arizona State University, the Podsafe Music Network, GarageBand at garageband.com, Podsafe Audio, and SoundSnap. The titles and artist names for all the music used here can be found at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. 
Check back with us or click that subscribe button or follow us to find out about the next story on the Theater of the Midnight Sun. This one, a bizarre mystery set in the not-so-distant future called Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying, no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain. It's just us, the Theater of the Midnight Sun. It's the time and the season to bring loved ones together. Never let distance keep you apart. With the spirit of Christmas.